0: For a long time, Republican politicians have had this way of talking about abortion. They say it's wrong, sure. But they also use these two words again and again. States' rights. This has been the go-to line from Mitch McConnell, Mitt Romney, Ted Cruz. Supreme Court justices, too. The idea here is the Constitution doesn't say anything about abortion. So let's kick this to the states. Let local legislators make a call on this hot-button issue. This line is so well-worn. It seemed to me like it had been around forever. But when I asked Slate's Mark Joseph Stern about the origin of this argument, he said actually letting states decide on abortion, it was kind of the B plan.
1: So the states' rights line uh, really only came to being after Roe versus Wade and after the anti-abortion movement failed in its immediate response to Roe, which was to try to pass a constitutional amendment banning abortion across the country. In the 70s. In the 70s. And so just as this grand dream of a constitutional amendment banning abortion is falling apart, the strategy shifts to, you know what? Let's just say Roe versus Wade was egregious overreach. It tried to create this single federal solution, but this really is an issue for the states, and every state should decide for itself. So that became the anti-abortion argument out of political necessity, more so than any deeply felt conviction that abortion is a states' rights issue.
0: But now that the Supreme Court has overturned Roe, and states are deciding things when it comes to abortion— Conservatives seem to be realizing there's a problem with their state's rights vision. It's chaotic, even dangerous. Since the court's ruling last month, doctors in states with abortion bans have struggled to figure out how to care for patients with high risk pregnancies, including miscarriages.
2: And all of them express concerns the new laws will put their patients' health at risk. So there's a lot of back and forth as to how sick. Does the patient need to be to get delivered? Does she have to develop an infection? Can we intervene before she develops an infection? How sick does she have to be before the staff felt comfortable delivering her because of this law hanging over our head?
0: Politico wrote a few months back that 50 states, each with their own abortion policies, was the bedrock assumption of what a post-Roe world would look like. I kind of wonder, was that your bedrock assumption?
1: Absolutely not. And it was not the bedrock assumption of anyone who has studied the history of abortion. Why? Because it's so clear from the history that this was, again, a kind of politically expedient, temporary solution um, that was never gonna hold. The dream of the anti-abortion movement has always been some kind of federal ban. They don't like abortion. They think it's murder. They think it's a, a baby holocaust.
0: Today on the show, how the tactics and talking points of the anti-abortion movement are shifting, and why leaving abortion legislation up to the states just isn't an option anymore. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. One lawmaker who's been outspoken on abortion as a states' rights issue is Lindsey Graham. Like, as as recently as August, he was on CNN saying, I think the states should decide the issue of abortion, as well as the issue of of marriage equality.
2: The point I'm trying to make is I've been consistent. I think states should decide the issue of marriage and states should decide the issue of abortion.
0: But then last week, he seemed to flip. Can you tell me what he proposed?
1: So Lindsey Graham proposed a federal ban on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy with a few exceptions, an exception that's very narrow for the life of the mother, an exception that's quite narrow as well for uh, victims of rape. And it's important that I note that this is not a kind of grand compromise that would set a, a single federal standard. It would leave untouched the many state-level bans that are stricter than this. So states that have banned abortion from zero weeks, those laws would remain. This bill would really only affect the blue states that have decided not to limit abortion access and lower the ceiling at which abortions can be performed in those states down to 15 weeks, which is just a, a few weeks into the second trimester.
0: I feel like we should say this 15-week abortion ban has no chance of passing right now for a lot of reasons, which makes it, to me, even more bizarre that Lindsey Graham would propose it. Like, what was the
1: calculus here? A lot of pressure from the uh, anti-abortion movement, from the coalition of organizations that fought for and won the Dobbs decision uh, and so many of these state-level bans, and there has been a huge amount of pressure on congressional Republicans since the Dobbs decision to introduce a bill like this. Lindsey Graham, for years, put forth a bill that would have banned abortion at 20 weeks. And this was his efforts at a kind of post-Dobbs nudge where he went down to 15 weeks and tried to, I think, placate the anti-abortion groups without going so far to incur political backlash.
0: And Graham did seek to to couch this law as moderate. He basically was saying the U.S. is an outlier here and other countries around the world, they don't allow abortion after a certain amount of time.
2: If we adopted my bill, our bill, we would be in the mainstream of most everybody else in the world. I think there are 47 of the 50 European countries have a ban on abortion from 12 to 15 weeks.
0: Is that fair of him?
1: No, it's completely unfair because so many of those countries he was describing, including peer nations, you know, European democracies, um, they have very broad health exceptions after 12 weeks or 15 weeks or wherever the so-called elective abortion ban begins. They do not just allow abortions when the mother is actively dying. They have very broad and contextual and comprehensive exceptions that ensure that no patient ever has to risk their health uh, in order to carry a pregnancy to term. And that kind of broad, patient-focused exception is completely lacking from Lindsey bill.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that because what would a 15 week abortion ban mean if we took this bill seriously and if it were to become law.
1: So, I guess the good news for pro-choice folks is that this bill would not affect the vast majority of abortions. Fewer than 5% of abortions are performed after 15 weeks in this country. And so it's true that most abortions would still be permitted on the federal level in, in states that allow them. But the flip side of that is that abortions that are performed after 15 weeks are disproportionately due to a fetal anomaly, an issue with maternal health, Uh, A problem, a crisis really in the pregnancy that arises in the second trimester. And one reason is that a lot of these issues, uh, especially fetal anomalies, they can only be detected after 15 weeks when scans start to show uh, fetal organs developing. And so, what this bill would really do is force a huge number of patients who are having a pregnancy crisis, who need Uh, to get an abortion to preserve their health or to uh, spare the the trauma of a stillbirth or uh, having an infant who's incompatible with life, those people would be forced to carry their pregnancies to term and undergo terrible pain and anguish and possibly death um, because this bill is written so narrowly and so focused on that subset of patients.
0: Well, and also my understanding is that this bill, there are a lot of restrictions and rules You have to do all this paperwork to kind of prove your worthiness for an abortion and have all these extra people involved in a decision that's probably really complicated for the woman and definitely really stressful.
1: And especially stressful if you're a victim of rape. And uh, Graham has tried to frame this exception as broad and kind of um, understanding but the reality is what Graham did is pack this so-called exception with a, a bunch of obstacles. And one of those is that an adult victim of rape has to get counseling or health care relating to her rape from a, a government's licensed facility and then wait an additional 48 hours at a minimum before terminating her pregnancy. And then the doctor who terminates the pregnancy has to do so Uh, using the method that is most likely to allow the fetus to survive, which in the second and third trimester means induced labor which is a a really difficult procedure. It's much more dangerous than a typical D&E, which is the usual abortion performed at this stage. Um, I mean, it forces the woman to go through childbirth, essentially. And at that stage, there have to be two doctors in the room, one who's like ready to resuscitate the fetus if possible. Um, It's just a crazy idea that I don't think is really practicable and just adds layers of punishment to the victim as she's forced to undergo this childbirth, essentially, that she doesn't want to do early in pregnancy and then watch these doctors try to resuscitate the fetus that she did not want to have in the first place.
0: So as Lindsey Graham was talking about this bill, he was asked a question by a woman who told this gripping story of what had happened to her when her fetus had been diagnosed with an abnormality. Can you tell me about who she is and, and what she said?
1: So her name is Ashby Beasley, and she was actually on the Hill to meet with uh, Senator Pat Toomey about an assault weapons ban because she and her son, her six year old son, were at the Highland Park shooting in Illinois on July 4th. Now, they both survived, but she was there to discuss a solution to that problem, but heard that Lindsey Graham was holding a press conference and decided to stop by because when she was pregnant with a different child, they learned that there was a fetal anomaly at 16 weeks, which, of course, is after the ban that Graham is proposing would kick in. I had regular
2: appointments. I did everything I'm right. And at 16 weeks, we found out that our son was likely not
1: Yeah. Live. She ultimately decided to uh, have the child and allow it to live outside the womb. When he was born,
2: he lived for eight days. Yeah. From every orifice of his body, but we were allowed to make that choice for him. Right. You would be robbing that choice from those women. What do you say to
1: someone like well, Here's what I would say the world pretty much is. But she argued situation. passionately that yeah. any woman in her position just- should have the right to undergo an abortion instead, which is just medically far safer to the patient at 16 weeks and beyond than uh, induced labor. And I think it's such a classic American tale in a really dark way, that this poor woman was here because she was at the site of a mass shooting and she had to stop by to explain to a Republican senator the the trauma and pain that would be inflicted if he succeeded in passing a 15-week abortion ban.
0: Senator Graham's response to Ashby's plea did not sound especially empathetic.
2: The world pretty much has spoken on this issue. Uh, the developed world has said at this stage into the, the pregnancy, uh, the child feels pain. And, and we're saying we're going to join the rest of the world and not be like Iran. As to your particular case, there'll be exceptions. for.
0: As the midterms approach, more and more Republicans have had to answer tough questions about abortion. So I asked Mark if he thought Graham was offering a solution here. An answer to questions like Ashby's about what you believe when it comes to abortion.
1: You know, if that were the political inspiration behind this bill, then I would advise Republicans to get new political advisors (laughs) because all this bill does is confirm that Republicans have a broader goal of imposing some federal limit on abortion, which truly contradicts everything that they were saying about abortion right up until the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. So the generous read is that now they can say, oh, well, we don't want an absolute ban at the federal level. We only want a 15-week ban.
0: Still a ban.
1: Yeah. Yeah. As our colleague Jim Newell pointed out in his great article about this, the key words are abortion ban.
0: After Lindsey Graham proposed this bill... It was widely panned by both Democrats and Republicans. Like Mitch McConnell essentially backed away from it and said, I don't have anything to do with this. So if this is a political loser, why is it important for the two of us to be teasing it out anyway?
1: Because it's also a preview of what Republicans will do when they regain unified control. And they will one day hold Congress and the White House once again. And the question will be, what are their priorities? And we now know that for President Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Trump part two, one of the priorities will be some kind of federal limit on abortion.
0: After the break, it isn't just Congress debating abortion again. The Supreme Court may have said the states should be the final arbiters on this topic, but Mark says that can't last.
2: Price and coverage match limited by state law.
0: So, Mark, you usually cover the Supreme Court for Slate. And in the Dobbs decision, which overruled Roe v. Wade, Justice Alito kind of said the Constitution doesn't have anything to say about abortion. So I wonder, has the Supreme Court wiped its hands of decision-making over abortion? Are they, like, all, all done now?
1: Um. That was their dream. That's what (laughs) Justice Alito suggested in his majority opinion. That's what Justice Brett Kavanaugh outright stated in his concurrence. He was like, oh, we've solved the problem. You know, all the other questions are really minor and easy. Like, now we're done with abortion. But that is not reality. The reality is that there are so many other issues relating to abortion that are already in the federal courts or that will soon enter the federal courts that are going to divide judges and go to the Supreme Court for resolution. And a lot of those are, are really difficult or thorny or controversial. And this, the Supreme Court is going to have to answer them because judges are going to vehemently disagree. And we can't have different versions of federal law in different parts of the country. SCOTUS is going to have to step in.
0: Yeah, you've highlighted one decision in particular that is likely headed for the Supreme Court because there are are a couple of opinions that are likely to conflict in Texas and Idaho. I'm wondering if you can explain what's going on
1: here. Yeah. So shortly after the Supreme Court overturned Roe, one of the Biden administration's responses was to remind states specifically those with these really stringent abortion bans, that there's a federal law called the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. It's called EMTALA for short. Everybody calls it EMTALA. And it was passed in 1986. And it requires hospitals that have emergency treatment to meet a certain baseline of care for patients in crisis. And it says, look, if you are a hospital, you have got to provide stabilizing treatment to anyone with an emergency medical condition.
0: This is pretty basic. It's like, try not to kill your patient.
1: Try not to kill your patient. That's right. And what the Biden administration reminded states is that there are many cases in which a pregnant patient will die. Unless she gets an abortion. And when an abortion is necessary to stabilize her, hospitals are obligated under federal law to perform it. Uh, And so even if there's a state law that says you can't perform an abortion under those circumstances, that doesn't matter because federal law reigns supreme and federal law says you have got to stabilize her even if an abortion is necessary.
0: But it raises this thorny question, which is like how... How close to dying does the woman need to be to qualify
1: for this? And that's the exact question that has been raised in state after state in the post-Dobbs world, where you have women who are experiencing sepsis, who are hemorrhaging, bleeding very heavily, who appear to be heading toward death. And hospital lawyers and ethics committees are telling doctors— You cannot treat this patient with an abortion until they are certain to die unless the pregnancy is terminated. Because the way these state level bans are written, the exception for the life of the mother is incredibly narrow and incredibly vague and could plausibly be read to require a patient to be sort of crashing on the table before an abortion becomes legal and necessary to save her life.
0: So, Texas has basically said that Texas law supersedes federal law here, right? Even though, as a rule, when federal and state laws conflict, federal law prevails.
1: I mean, that's what Texas is really saying. Their lawyerly version of that argument is that this federal law doesn't really say anything about abortion because it doesn't use the word abortion. And also, This is pretty remarkable. The Texas argument in courts is that States get to choose between saving an actual patient and saving the fetus. And if they think that allowing the patient to die is necessary to save the fetus or give the fetus a best chance of living, that that is a legitimate choice that a state can make under its own law and that MTALA does not supersede that because it doesn't have explicit instructions in those circumstances.
0: So how will this decision go to the Supreme Court?
1: Well, because we have two conflicting decisions in the lower courts already about whether Biden is right or whether Texas is right. Um, so Texas sued after the Biden administration sent out this, this guidance and prevailed because it got a very conservative Trump judge in the district court who said actually states get to decide if they want to save the patient or save the fetus. And Tala does not supersede Texas law. But then in Idaho, where the legislature passed an incredibly stringent abortion ban with very, very limited exceptions for the life of the mother, the Justice Department stepped in and sued uh, and said, actually, Idaho, you have now violated Mtala by forcing patients to die and denying them stabilizing treatment when they need an abortion. And in that case, they drew a liberal district court judge. And that judge completely disagreed with his colleague in Texas and said, the federal government is right this law guarantees abortions when they're necessary in emergency. So we've got conflicting decisions in different parts of the country. And that is the classic scenario in which the Supreme Court steps in. When are they expected to look at this case? Do we even know? This could easily happen within the next few weeks. We're talking months at the latest. I think this fall, the Supreme Court is going to have another abortion case on the docket that will force it to answer this incredibly thorny question of when and whether hospitals have an obligation under federal law to save a woman's life or health by performing an emergency abortion.
0: I don't know how much I want to know what SCOTUS is going to say here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I don't know. I understand why these cases have to be appealed and we have to, you know, work this out. But I'm sort of curious what you think is going to happen once these cases go to this Supreme Court.
1: So I think that the answer to that question is how John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh feel when they wake up on the morning. They have to decide these cases.
0: You think it's that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, just choose your own adventure?
1: Look, there's there's four justices, Alito, Barrett, Thomas, and Gorsuch, who are just going to rule against abortion every time. It's very clear that they are just anti-abortion, and they feel that there's no circumstance under which the state's choices can be overridden, unless it's, you know, some kind of federal ban. But
0: will they rule against dying women?
1: You know, look, a judge in Texas already did. And did so unapologetically and said, well, it's dying women versus dying fetus, and the state can choose the fetus. I think that's a tougher call for someone like Brett Kavanaugh, who really prides himself on being empathetic and compassionate, usually in a performative way. But if I were Brett Kavanaugh, I would see this case as a terrific opportunity. To limit some of the political damage that I inflicted through the Dobbs decision, because this actually gives the Supreme Court the opportunity to be a hero to step in just months after Dobbs and say, "Well, we're not letting it get that far." You know, these extreme, horrible cases of women dying. We're not letting the states take it that far. But I still don't know because I think that Kavanaugh and and also Roberts are very anti-abortion personally, and they're not gonna want to look like they're going back. on on their decision in Dobbs. And remember, even Roberts was okay with a 15-week ban. So it's a genuinely difficult prediction to make.
0: It seems to me that over the next few months, we're going to be changing the way we talk about abortion in this country in an interesting way, which is for decades now— The conversation about abortion has been about clinics, has been about abortion pills, has been about the majority of people who are having early abortions successfully. And now, because of the talk of a 15-week abortion ban, because of this case going in front of the Supreme Court, which is really about people in a different kind of situation in crisis, we're talking about women who are having to make very difficult decisions, often late in their pregnancy. We're talking about medical emergencies. How do you think focusing on these extreme cases rather than, I don't know, everyday abortion cases is going to impact the conversation we're all having?
1: I think it is very beneficial for abortion supporters and reproductive rights advocates who have been saying for so long that the discussion of later abortions, including 15 weeks, that those discussions are all mixed up and and really detached from reality. And what's happening now because of these bans is that we are learning the truth of later abortions. And we are learning that these happen mostly in traumatic, difficult medical emergencies. And that reality, I think, again, is helpful to reproductive rights advocates because it reinforces how important it is for patients and doctors to be making this decision themselves, and how inappropriate it is for the government to insert all of these layers, these state barricades, in between a woman and a doctor and their best medical judgment.
0: Marches of Stern, super grateful for your analysis. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Always a pleasure, even when it's this depressing.
0: Mark Joseph Stern is a senior writer for Slate, covering courts and the law. And that's the show. If you are a fan of What Next, the best way to show us some love is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up today. You can also show us some love by making sure you never miss What Next TBD each week on Fridays and Sundays. If you did that this week, because you know, life gets busy, Just scroll back through your feed. Check out the episode they dropped yesterday. It's all about how human traffickers are using technology to fuel their trade. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Carmel Delshad, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Anna Rubinova, Anna Phillips, and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed tomorrow. Catch you then.